Turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 4. Read 4 through 8. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we consider your word penned by the Apostle John for the good of your church, not only in the first century, but your church in every age, penned at the superintendence of your spirit, as the Father gave to the Son this revelation which he has passed down to us through John. We pray that we would receive this with glad hearts, that we would look to Christ evermore, that we would be warned and comforted, warned to avoid the internal temptation to sin and the external pressures that cause us to look away from Christ and his word and comforted that Christ indeed is our Savior and our King. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to spend some time this afternoon reflecting on the Lord whom we worship. In the midst of our daily lives, lives in which we are internally tempted to compromise with the world because of its pressures to do so, or in which we are feeling the external pressure of the difficulties around us, sufferings, persecutions, what have you, it's vital that we cut through all of that and focus on the Lord and look to him in worship. Our theology, our doctrinal thoughts of God ought to lead to doxology, to worship and to praise. When we learn who the Lord Jesus is and what he's done for us, then we worship. So this afternoon, we turn to the doxology, really a doxology that appears in the epistolary address of Revelation. I told you that this is a prophetic vision given in symbols that we are to come to understand, but it's a prophetic vision given in symbols in the context of a letter, an epistle. And in the context of that letter, after John introduces himself and addresses the churches, he then at one point, particularly at the end of verse 5 and in through verse 6, leads us into a doxology. We can see that by the last phrase in verse 6, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. John is addressing the church and he breaks into a doxology of the Lord. That's not uncommon, incidentally, in the letters of the New Testament. If we think about Paul in Ephesians addressing the church, breaks into a doxology in verse 3 and that carries all the way through verse 14. So here we have a doxology and I want to consider in the context of this six descriptions of our Lord. So here's the first description. He is the Lord who loves his people. Look at the middle of verse 5. You see, after it's described, Jesus says, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Then it says, to him, to that Jesus Christ who loves us. 
to him who loves us. This begins a praise to the Lord. And pay attention to this praise. To him who loves us. What a glorious word. The Lord Jesus loves you. He's being described that way. He's being praised as the one who loves us. You can hear the words of John 13, 1 reverberating there, can't you? When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from the world or out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The Father loves you. The Son loves you. The Holy Spirit loves you. God loves you. God is love. And why does he love you? Usually if I ask this question, people think I'm asking them, are you wanting to know what it is in me? Sort of like God's love is provoked in some way by me. Like he's moved to love by something beautiful in me. So what is it in us that draws out the love of God? Not one thing. Not one thing. It's not because of us that he loves us. It is because he is love that he loves us. His banner over you is love. It should cause you to burst into doxology too. Right, when we sang a verse on this this morning, on such love my soul still ponder. Love so great, so rich, so free. Say while lost in holy wonder, why, O Lord, such love to me? Because that's who he is. And that's what he's chosen to do. The Lord is the one who loves us. Second, he is the Lord, our Savior. Look at the next part there. To him who loves us, that middle phrase in verse 5 again, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. He not only loves us, but he has freed us from our sins by his blood. We were in bondage to sin and death because of our sins. We're stained, defiled, unclean, enslaved, dead. We could not draw near to God. We had no right of access to him. Death and hell were our plight. As Paul said, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But he freed us, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Christ came and atoned for our sins on the cross. He swallowed the cup of God's wrath, his just wrath toward us, down to the dregs for us. Apart from Jesus, we'll die in our sins. Apart from Christ, we are not free. We are slaves to unrighteousness. But Jesus speaks a glorious word in John 8. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you are free indeed. You are free indeed. If anyone looks to Christ, he will be saved. My little children, John says in 1 John 2, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Sovereign grace, you are forgiven for your sins. Christ has freed you from the penalty of sin, 
and from the power of sin by his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. We're just to revel in that mercy. Our Lord is Jesus, which means the Lord saves. The Lord Jesus loves us and has freed us by his blood. Third description, he is the Lord, our king. Verse 6, like the beginning, I'll start at that doxology to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and made us a kingdom. Jesus is the king and he's come to rescue his people and bring them into his kingdom. Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 tell us about the coming kingdom of God that will conquer all the kingdoms of men. And Jesus is the coming king who brings in that kingdom. Jesus is, remember, not of this world and his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is a new creation kingdom, not an old creation kingdom. And when you're saved, you're brought into that kingdom. You're citizens of that kingdom. Heaven is your home. Paul makes this clear in his prayer in Colossians 1. This is what he says. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is our king and we're his people. So our Lord loves us. Our Lord frees us from our sin by his blood. He saves us. And our Lord is our king. Further, we continue with the descriptions. I want to say, fourth, our Lord is our mediator. He is the Lord who is our mediator. Look there and made us a kingdom, priests to God his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Priest to God, his God and Father. Christ is our great high priest who is seated in the heavens, and in him we're able to approach God and worship. In him, we are those who can go directly to the God and Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. This notion of a kingdom of priests is taken right from Exodus 19. Israel was to be a kingdom of priests. Israel, as God's firstborn son, Exodus 4, was to be a kingdom of priests, Exodus 19. Christ, as the true and better Israel, the true and better son, is the great high priest, and he's caused us to be a kingdom of priests in him. We're now his people, and we draw near to him in worship. We also mediate that gospel message to others through our proclamation of him. So it's not just that the priestly office that we know in Christ, if you will, is that go directly to God in prayer through Christ. It's not merely that. It's also that we're given the privilege of, if you will, mediating the gospel message to other people, telling them the good news. 1 Peter 2.9, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, you ready? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. By the way, if, if you're not noticing, most of these passages I'm reading connect to the passages from this morning. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the Lord loves us. He is our Savior. He is our King. He is our mediator. Fifth, He is the Lord, our judge. Verse 7, behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. John's doing something really interesting here. He's bringing together two ideas from the Old Testament. He's quoting both from Daniel and from Zechariah. 
I want you to hear where he's quoting from Daniel. In Daniel 7, verse 13 to 14, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. The emphasis here is on the king coming in judgment. He is, if you will, it's the fulfillment of Psalm 2. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. He is the king whom God has set on Zion, his holy hill, his only begotten son, who has become incarnate, and who is ruling and reigning over all the earth, and he is judging and saving. He's taken the throne. He has all authority in heaven and earth. Remember that? All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. He's currently, presently, the Danielic son of man. He actually warns the Pharisees of that, doesn't he? Pharisees and Sadducees, when they take him aside in his trial and, and try him, he gives a really interesting response to them when they ask him about being the son of man. He actually says, behold, from now on, from now on, you will see the son of man coming with the clouds. In other words, he's referencing the fact that his rule and reign, his right to judge and save is beginning. It's not merely future, it's present. It's happening right now. He has established his kingdom, and he will return to put all his enemies under his feet. There's an already, he's the ruling, reigning king, judging the nations and the peoples as we speak. And he will return and finish that work fully and completely. But second, he's pointing us to Zechariah 12. Look there at verse 7 again. Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Every eye will see him. This is going to start Zechariah 12.10. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. This is an interesting combination of texts. Zechariah is prophesying in Zechariah 12 about the coming day of the Lord and the restoration of his people. Keep your hand there and look at Zechariah 12. Because you're a bit more familiar with Daniel, I decided to spend a little bit of time by having you turn to Zechariah 12. If you look at 12, verse 1, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel, thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. We're right back to Genesis 1 and 2, aren't we? Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. Verse 6, on that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. I want you to hear the Khan talking about this great day in which he restores Jerusalem, his people, and he destroys his enemies. And the land is again inhabited and fruitful. 
Now look what he says in verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David. Now notice what's being poured out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So there's a pouring out of the spirit of grace and pleas for mercy upon David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Look down at chapter 13 and verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. See, there's this suffering servant, if you will, who's coming and they'll pierce him. They'll put him to death and they'll look to him and they'll mourn and they'll repent and a fountain will open and they'll be washed clean and their sins will be forgiven. A spirit of grace and mercy will be poured out on them and they'll be saved. This is a text where they mourn, but it's not a text of judgment. Their mourning is those who see the suffering servant, the lamb who was slain. And since a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy were poured out on them, they mourn as those who see their sin and their rebellion against the Lord and they're saved. But there's an interesting change here. John changes the language. If you're paying attention to Zechariah, if you look at verse 10, it says, so that when they look on me, on him whom they've pierced, who's the they? The house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. When the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem look on me, when they look on me, on him whom they've pierced. Now look at Revelation chapter 1 and verse 7. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And notice this, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. John has changed the language from the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to all the tribes of the earth. In other words, true Israel has expanded to incorporate everyone who trusts the Lord from every tribe and tongue and nation. So John brings together in one verse two quotations that teach us Christ is both ruling and reigning as judge and as savior. He's doing them both. He is both the triumphant king and the suffering servant. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah and the lamb who was slain. That's why John the Baptist said of him, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, and he'll gather the wheat up into his barns, and he will throw the tares, the weeds, into unquenchable fire. He is coming, John the Baptist says, both to save and to judge. He's coming to do both things. And he's currently ruling and reigning. He's presently judging and separating the wheat from the chaff. That's what John is saying. Jesus, even now, is separating the wheat from the chaff as the judge. Now, this isn't the final consummation of that. That's going to come, too, in Revelation. But it's happening right now. People are being judicially hardened and rejecting the Lord, or God is showing them mercy, and their eyes are being opened, and they're looking to him in faith. That's happening as we speak. And he will return to finish that work. And we ought to praise him for it. Finally, he is the Lord. The best way for me to say it is, who is all in all. Look at verse 4 again. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Notice that who is and who was and who is to come brackets this whole passage. Look down at verse 8. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Maybe we should just sum it up and say this is language that is intentionally, I don't want to call it grammatically poor. There's a kind of grammar John is using here to throw you off. He's not making certain words match the way they're supposed to in Greek grammar. He's catching your attention on purpose. He's God of Exodus 3, the one who said, I am. That's who he is. He's the Almighty. Genesis 17, El Shaddai, God Almighty. That's who's speaking to you. Though in this passage, it's first about the Father. It is also about the Son. You'll see that throughout the book of Revelation. He is God, the Almighty. He is the sovereign over all of history. He is without beginning or without end. Christ is all and in all. He's all and in all. So what are we to do with these glorious truths? I mean, this is just a really tight little summation or doxology to our Lord. We're to hear them and we're to praise him. This is the real thing that John is coming at in the book of Revelation. And I want you to hear this because it's not just a problem in the first century where some people in some places were being persecuted or where some people in some places were compromising with worldliness. We see both of those things in the letters to the seven churches. It's not just a situation in the first century where some people in some places were caught up in apostasy or given to false teaching or syncretism between worldly philosophies and Christianity. It's not just what's happening there. It's a message that the whole church in every generation needs to hear. You need to be warned. This God is not to be toyed with or trifled with. He's not your homeboy. He's the Lord of glory. You can't just say, I'd like to have him and all of my fleshly sin as well, please. You come to him in faith, and if you will, the first fruit of faith is repentance. And a gift of faith that comes with the grace of faith is obedience. And you follow him, and you obey him, and you eschew the things of the world. So it's a warning. It's also an encouragement. Your eyes are caught up on all this right here. You think that the world, really, the kings of the earth are the ones in control. The heretics, if you will, are winning the day. I mean, their crowds are a lot bigger than ours. They're winning the day. And you think that because your eyes are still in the wrong place. They're in the wrong place. Put your eyes on Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 3.1. If then you have been raised with Christ, and if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, one who's looked to him, repented of your sins, then you've been raised with him. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. See, your old man is dead. Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears. Did you catch that? It's not when Christ, who is on your list, the first in priority, appears. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So put your eyes on him. That's what we need to do. That's why we come to pray. The reason we gather Sunday morning and Sunday afternoon slash evening is because of a pattern that we see in Scripture. But that pattern's in Scripture because we're supposed to take the morning and the evening and consecrate our lives to God. 
And so we come here doing that, knowing that our eyes are set on Christ. We need to pray and ask him for his help, knowing to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Father, we're thankful for the word. We're thankful for Christ our Lord, his amazing grace toward us, his love toward us. We're thankful that we have been made into a kingdom of priests. May we consecrate our lives to our King, our Sovereign, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who rules and reigns at your right hand, the one who judges and saves. And may he be pleased to return soon. Amen.